Here we are with another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This event was recorded on 16th of February 2011 and features Alison Jones, who is the Director of Digital Development at Polgrave Macmillan. Alison discusses the changes that have taken place for traditional publishers as they migrate to digital publishing. Um, I'm going to talk about some of our experiences, some of the uh, impact that this is having on us, the whole digital migration journey. Um, I won't talk for the whole session, you'll be glad to hear. What I'm going to do is um, probably talk about 15-20 minutes, and at the end of that, uh, if there's any of the themes that I've touched on that you want to pick up on, we'll explore those in a bit more detail, or if there's anything that I haven't addressed but you'd really like to take the opportunity to ask me about, then that's fine too. Okay? So, going digital gracefully. The digital revolution, which they've been talking about for so long, is, uh, oh, it's happened, it's here. And suddenly publishers are finding that everything is up for renegotiation, everything they thought they knew um, <laughs> is changing. And there are new players in the market, new players rewriting the rules, new players with very deep pockets. And uh, how can a publisher respond to that, move to the digital world without losing the revenues on which their profits are based, the print revenues, and make the most of the opportunities that the digital revolution affords without losing their identity in the process. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Palgrave Macmillan. I'm sure you all know a lot about it from Beverly, but I'm going to just talk you through a little bit about our publishing. Because part of the problem with that phrase digital publishing is that you think you know what you mean by it, but actually there are lots of different types of digital publishing because there are lots of different types of publishing. And Palgrave is unusual in that it covers such a broad spread of publishing, so it's quite useful for you as a sort of microcosm and as a study. So um, I apologise for anybody that's seen this before. I have used it in a couple of talks before, but I just find it an incredibly useful way and a very condensed way of, of showing the sort of publishing we do and the sorts of issues that are involved in, um, in all of them. MRW stands for Major Reference Works. Sorry, but use the three-letter acronyms are useful in diagrams when you can't fit the whole thing on. So Major Reference Works, typically multi-volume, A to Z encyclopedic type works, um, secondary type literature, um, similar in form, I suppose, to journal articles, but journal articles obviously primary, so very timely, reference much more secondary, and a, sort of a distillation of knowledge rather than um, creation of new knowledge. Um, journals, I think you all know about. Monographs, so that's what we think of as e-books typically at Palgrave Macmillan, um, typically a single author, high-level, scholarly, sustained argument. Um, business and professional books, which shade off into monographs sometimes, um, you know, high-level business monographs can often have a kind of CEO readership, and then there's the pure business stuff, which is for people, you know, doing MBAs, but also just wanting to advance their careers. And that can shade off into trade. At Palgrave, we publish quite high-level non-fiction trade, so we don't do blockbuster fiction, unfortunately. Um, Pam Macmillan, our sister company, specialises in that, and in the States we have Macmillan US. But we do do quite a lot of stuff that's quite timely at the moment. There's a lot on Middle Eastern studies, for example, so people wanting to understand current affairs and politics and business. And then we also publish textbooks in our college division. So that's um, some low-level undergraduate stuff, but more typically sort of third, fourth year undergraduate and postgraduate. We also have a very big study skills list, which is quite relevant in the context of what we're talking about today. So that's kind of a brief overview of the range of our publishing. You see it's pretty broad. And this is how it breaks down in terms of strategies. I promised I wouldn't move too far from the microphone, so, so I'm going to gesture and hope that you can follow me. Um, on the left of the diagram there, the, the reference journals and monographs, all those are primarily, not exclusively, but primarily bought by libraries. 
And that makes things really easy for publishers. You've got a single institution that knows what they're doing, they value intellectual property, you know, they just understand and you can have a direct relationship and high levels of purchase. So in many ways, that is a really satisfying and productive um, relationship between the two of us. Um, business professional trade and textbooks, again, not exclusively, but primarily bought by individuals, which is a much, much more difficult relationship. It's pretty much opaque. We have to go through third parties. We don't really know what the people who are actually reading our content are thinking about it, where they're buying it from, what they're thinking about the price. It's much harder to get a sense of, um, of whether we're getting it right for individuals. You can only sort of assess the, the data and the maths, if you like, from the sales reports. Again, on the left-hand side, and almost exclusively for some of our major reference works, everything's online. Journals, as you know, went online 20, 25 years ago, uh, particularly in sciences, and that's moved very quickly into humanities and social sciences, which is where we um, specialise. So at the moment, our journals business has just passed that kind of tipping point where most of the revenues are now digital. So that was quite an important moment in the business. That happened for our sister company, Nature, a couple of years back. Um, so there's that sort of filter through from the science and technical and medical STM world through to humanities and social sciences. Um, well, actually through to social sciences and then gradually through to humanities. There's a very clear spectrum. Um, monographs are not yet at that tipping point, but we expect them to be in a couple of years. So we have significant revenues from digital monographs, but the main revenues are still print. And for business professional trade and textbooks, it's very solidly still a print business. There's lots of experimentation and excitement around digital, but at the moment, it's a relatively small proportion of revenues. And for textbooks particularly, there are real issues with the digital models and the, the business models particularly. I'll come on to those in detail in a minute. So we talked already about the, the routes, the direct sale is really strategically important for us. Where we can invest and build our own platforms and have our own direct relationships with our customers with our own sales team, that's a real kind of strategic plank of the business. It gives us a great amount of knowledge about our customers and a real um, sense of being able to control our, old our own destinies and move forward. Um, we can't have that kind of relationship and investment in a single textbook, for example, or in a single trade book. So there we have a much more um, collaborative approach with partners in, this, in the industry. The supply chain is, is longer, if you like, and we're at more of a distance from the end consumer. Um, we do also use aggregators, um, like NetLibrary, Ebury, MyLibrary, all sorts of people. So we've got that um, sort of dual function of selling our own content, but also working with third parties, because many librarians don't want to talk to individual publishers. They really, really don't want a direct relationship with multiple publishers. They want to go to one place and get all their content. So we, uh, we work with that model as well. And then at the bottom, something that's really important for publishers in their digital strategy, the, the piracy threat. There is very little piracy threat for a major reference work online. Even if somebody sits and scrapes the entire HTML off the screen and good luck to them because it will take them a few years to do it, actually the content has changed the next month. It's all quite dynamic. So inherently that's quite well protected. It doesn't need technical DRM if you like. It's sort of, it, the content is, is protected in its very nature. Um, journals have a similar sort of tendency because there are different um, issues within the journal, even if you have got a PDF of everything and you just you know, make it available freely to the world, there is still value in that subscription because there's new stuff coming out all the time. Monographs are more problematic because they are standalone and typically they are available as PDFs now, so they're actually relatively easy to pirate. 
But luckily, there are relatively few people in the world who are really interested in the niche area of a monograph. They typically have print runs of you know, between four and 600 copies. And the people who care about that stuff are typically the libraries who respect intellectual property. So again, because of the nature of the content, you've got a relatively low risk of piracy. And as you can imagine, textbooks are right at the other end of that spectrum, where um, any self-respecting student who has a PDF of the textbook being used is going to search share it with their classmates, because why would you not do that? You know, you're, you're rolling this together, right? And it's your money. So there's a very, very high risk of piracy with textbooks, which <coughs> terrifies publishers, because textbooks are very expensive to produce, and the economics of publishing, as I'm sure you know, are already quite fragile. So um, yeah, one pirated copy of the textbook could wipe out the entire profit margin for that book. So. Um, that means that you have to have a different strategy for all these sorts of different areas. They'll shade off into each other, they'll share common features, but you do have to have a, a separate sort of set of thinking because of the supply chain, the customers, the risk of piracy, and the routes to market are all subtly different. Any questions on that for anyone? As well as that was sort of reflecting our traditional print output, if you like, we've already moved to the stage where we have content that doesn't fit neatly into that framework anymore, that's born digital, if you like, that's just it's basically us taking um, the opportunities that digital affords and building content specifically for that. This is stuff that's never been in print and never will be. So um, at the moment, we have e-learning products, for example, um, Skills Study Campus is our um, main one. It's a subscription product to institutions. Uh, we go direct through our own sales team. And again, DRM is completely irrelevant because this is um, it's interactions. You're sitting down, you're doing studies. You cannot simply rip the content off and have it retain its value. The value is in the whole service. Um, and we've also started doing some apps. We did a student budget planner. We're doing a few more at the moment. Um, at the moment, we're using them as free downloads to support the print revenues. I'm pretty soon we'll be moving to an actual you know, revenue experimentation with that and seeing whether there is a sustainable revenue source there for us. And that's all through third parties, obviously, rather than direct. And again, DRM is sort of irrelevant because the whole thing is packaged up as software rather than content. So the specific challenges that the publishers have got to um, face and embrace as they uh, <coughs> attempt to move digital, the first of them is actually quite abstract. It's mental models. And I don't, I don't know if I, um, whether you, any of you have ever said this, don't say in a job interview, I love books, me. Really don't want to hear that. It's like, you love books, marvellous, go home and read them. If you want to come here, you work. You know, lots of publishers um, really wilt every time they hear that phrase because you hear it so often. But still, actually, people who work in publishing do love books. That's one of the reasons we do it. We care about them. And we think we have a very good idea of what we mean by the word book. And it's a physical object that you hold. And that's really deep. The book as object is so fundamental to the way that most publishers think that it's actually quite hard to get people, particularly people who aren't involved in digital publishing directly, um, to sort of move away from that, to abstract the idea of book, to take the idea of concept and communication, and then to look at how digital publishing changes that and enables new ways of using that content. So instead of being a sort of self-contained monologue, monologue, which just gets put on a shelf and there is no sense of who's going to buy it or how they're going to react with the content, that all changes. It's a conversation. It can be a conversation amongst the ideas between different books. If you've got books on a platform, you can link to them, for example. Or it can even be a, com a conversation between readers and the author or readers and themselves. And that's quite powerful and exciting. Um, and it doesn't need to be static anymore. 
um, our old production used, director used to say, it used to make me laugh, in the old days you just publish a book and go home, it's marvellous, <laughs> and then you go back and do another one the next day. Now it's not like that, you publish a book and it's, you have to support it and maintain it, and in many cases the content is dynamic and you go back and you revisit it, you update the references, you add things in in response to public events, so it's very much um, a, a, a snapshot if you like, and it has to stay a, a, a snapshot that people can refer back to for scholarly purposes, but you can build a whole dynamic conversation around that as well. And of course, for institutions that are subscribing to our content, we can personalise it as well. We can have the institution put their own um, logo on there. We can have them decide how they want it to be arranged. At the individual student level, they can decide, um, for example, if you have a student with dyslexia, they can customise their own way of presenting the material. So all this is really powerful and exciting and expensive. Um, business models. Again, in the old days, it was quite easy. It was transactional. You bought a book, and then there was a very clear flow of money through the supply chain back to the publisher, back to the author. Um, and now it can be that simple. You can just pay for a download, which is sort of mirroring the same sort of thing. Or you can be an institution having a subscription, or you can have a one-off purchase with a maintenance fee, or you could have a freemium model whereby you get the content for free, but if you want to print it out, you can pay for that. Or you can have pay-per-view, or you can have patron-driven access. There's just a limitless number of ways in which you can monetize that content and trying to get the balance right and the, the balance of pricing right is a black art. And then it's a cultural challenge, it's a cultural challenge for publishers as I've said at the abstract level, what is a book and how can we present this content um, and there's, as with any industry, that sense of change, is, is disruption, particularly in, in publishing, it's typically been a, a very process driven industry, very risk averse, operating at very low margins and trying to get that kind of culture fired up about change, able to take risks happily, tolerate failure, and um, embrace all that down to the, um, the lowest levels is really hard work. So change management is a very, very big part of what we do. Um, authors as well, some of them absolutely get it and are really excited and are frustrated that we're moving too slow. Others are terrified by it. So you'll get, for example, we put a lot of our content into Google Books and you'll get um, one author can phone to complain that they can see some of their content online for free and this is awful and we must remove it and another one saying why can't all my content be up there on Google Books I want to be seen there's that twin fear of invisibility and piracy and different authors respond different ways to that so um, it's a lot about educating them and about understanding what they need and reassuring them about what we're doing um, agents is a whole new argument don't get me started on them um, users and readers. So again, when you buy a book, you've got a very clear set of expectations about what you're going to get from that book and the limitations of it. And also you understand that you're holding a physical object which you're prepared to pay money for in most cases, not all cases, in many cases. Um, there's a much more nebulous sense of what you're actually getting with an e-book or with digital content and how much you're prepared to pay for it or if you're prepared to pay for it at all. So there's lots of change around every single part of that, um, that chain. And for publishers specifically, the organisational structure needs to be looked at again. We've typically had, and I'll come on to a diagram when I talk about a specific case study, we've typically had quite a linear flow of um, workflows from delivery of the manuscript through to publication of the book and ongoing sales and marketing. And we've traditionally broken our companies down into market-facing divisions. So we might have an ELT company over here and a trade fiction company over here, for example. And actually, if you go upstream, to the technology, to the building of platforms and services, that might not really make sense. An e-learning product will suit e-learning um, ELT content 
quite as well as it might suit social work content, for example. So we're looking again at how we build and how we work together within the, the Macmillan Group. And I know that many companies with a big sort of corporate structure are doing the same thing. And from having those sort of siloed departments, we're finding more and more that we're working in cross-functional teams, which is a really exciting, stimulating way to work. But it does mean that you have people working uh, in isolation in teams and on different things with competing priorities, so it's quite hard to manage. And then the buy-build decision. In the old days, very old days, publishers had their printing works in-house, for example, and they moved to outsource those because it didn't make sense to keep that as a core function. They kept the editorial, marketing, production functions in-house, but they outsourced to suppliers, typically offshore suppliers. What do you do about technology? Some publishers have actually acquired te technical companies because they see it as so core. At the moment, we outsource, but our sister company, Nature, has its own technical division, for example. So that constant sense of what is core to what we do, and what do we have to have on our payroll, and what do we buy in from external suppliers, and what are the dependencies, and what are the risks of that. And then how do we see our future? There's a real balance to be struck between us having a very clear vision of where we want to be in five years' time, and articulating that, <coughs> and uh, being able to lead the company, and, and give them a vision of where we're heading and being able to retain the flexibility to respond because things are changing so fast. And that in itself is quite a challenge and communicating that and keeping everybody sort of with their mind um, open and yet seeing where we're going is a really difficult game. And then workflows, which I'm sure you've done a lot of work on. Um, it used to be that we published the print and then we made the digital available. And that, when I say used to be, that was like last year. <laughs> so, um, you know, ancient history. And now that's no longer really acceptable. Libraries just want to make one decision. They want to have the, either the ebook or the print or both, and they want to decide at the point of publication. So suddenly, digital um, creation of digital file has gone from being something that's added on at the end of the traditional workflow to moving upstream and upstream until suddenly it's something that actually you produce before the print because the print has that physical time for shipping and printing and so on. Uh, and that means that gradually the workflow changes. And in fact, I'm sure you're all familiar with XML. Yeah, great. XML becomes so much more important in the workflow because you're creating this more abstract, generic content which is going to have several different incarnations in its life. Uh, and that gives you lots of fun with housekeeping and version control and so on and author's last minute changes. We won't go there. Um, importance of rights and metadata. I am a metadata bore, I'm sorry, but it's the most important thing and people just don't understand how important it is. Everybody focuses on the content. Your content digitally is invisible if your metadata <coughs> isn't in place and isn't right and reliable and timely. So all the way through our publishing processes, right from the, even before contract, we have our editors putting the right data into our system and then it builds through the life of the book until we have a really rich, full, industry standard a message that we can pump out at the end of the day to all the partners who are going to be um, selling this book. And at the moment that's at title level, but we're already looking at how that might work at chapter level, for example, for learning stuff, maybe even at learning object level. What do we inherit from the book and what do we make specific to that? What ontologies do we use in learning, for example? There are not necessarily standard um, classifications for all the different subjects. So there are various different industry standards out there, like Mark Records for libraries and Onyx in the, in the retail supply chain and those we use um, all the time. But we're also looking at SCORM, for example, for e-learning objects. And there's a, a lot of activity, and a lot of very interesting activity, in that whole area around standards and metadata for digital publishing. And digital asset management distribution, DAM and DAD, as we call them. Um, getting the scale of this right, and the timeliness of it, and pumping out your metadata and your content to all the people who need it as soon as it's available, 
you can still do it with a couple of people pedaling away furiously, but it's getting harder and harder. So a lot of publishers are investing in digital asset management systems that allow suppliers, for example, to remotely upload content as it's created, and then it will automatically flow through to all the suppliers with minimal <coughs> intervention. So th these are all quite big investments for publishers. And then the soft stuff, the skill sets. Multimedia is a really good example because suddenly we're having to create it more and more uh, in our digital content, our born digital content uh, particularly. It's not enough to have just text on a page as it is in a book, even diagrams. You need video, you need audio, you need all this stuff that will support it, animations and so on. Entirely new skill sets, entirely new suppliers and resources and everybody's skilling up on that very quickly. And digital sales and marketing skills are oddly the most sought-after skills apparently in publishing. I was um, talking to Susanna Cavana from um, Skillset, I can't remember the name of the organisation now, can you remember? Skillset, yeah. And they've done some research recently and I was expecting it to say technical skills and project management and all the stuff that I know that I'm you know, struggling to find. But she said actually digital marketing skills are among the, the most sought-after because people just don't yet know how to use particularly social media to support publishing. They're either making too formal a job of it, which just isn't trusted, or they're being too chummy-chummy about it, and it's just not working quite right for them. So um, there's a hot tip. If you can sell your digital marketing skills, you'll be in great demand. Um, and new competencies. Business analysis. Being able to sit back and look coolly and calmly at all the different options available to you, how they work together. Systems thinking, if you like. Quite difficult to find in publishing. Really, really valuable. Project management and project management in an agile sort of a way that enables you to um, throw in something to react to a competitor's um, innovation, for example, at a late stage without everybody falling off the bus. And um, search engine optimization, support and training. We found one of the things that was a surprise to us was as we got more um, sophisticated with our digital products, they require more support. So e-learning, for example, is a really good example of this. When you're making e-books available, it's pretty straightforward what you need to do. There's minimal customer support. If it's, I can't log in is about as far as it goes. Because if, you, if, you're, if you're needing support on that, then clearly there's something wrong with the platform. But with e-learning, it's much more complex. We've got you know, the ability to sync grades with the institution's VLE. We've got lots of different authentication options and so on. And institutions need help with that. But even more than the technical help, they need support rolling out these sorts of products in the institution, getting the buy-in of students, getting a sense of what would be considered successful in terms of take-up. So we're finding that account management and support and training are big, big areas for investment for us that we haven't quite anticipated. We thought through the technical demands, but not so much the soft stuff about supporting people over that hump of getting to grips with a new system. Um, the problem is, just as you are working in a university that's being rebuilt around you, we are trying to do all this new business stuff and keep the old business going at the same time. So it's almost like building one business right above another. So we've got all these new skills, XML, digital asset management, social media savvy, uh, the project management stuff, the systems thinking that I'm talking about and being able to actually um, get a very clear overview of how all the different bits interrelate, um, anti-piracy and DRM alongside all the stuff that we always used to do that we still have to do. So all that creativity that we expected in our commissioning editors, we still need that in our marketing people. The relationship building, to be able to build trust with authors to get the best out of them. The, the commercial savvy to be able to say this is a viable product, that isn't. And this is how we get the best out of it. None of that goes away. So we're looking for all the skills we used to be looking for, plus the new lot. I'm just going to very quickly talk you through uh, one particular project that illustrates a lot of the things I've been talking about. 
we launched our own ebook platform in February of 2009, so yeah, Paleolithic period. Um, it's designed around our scholarly monographs, and the model is basically that we sell them in collections, uh, a one-off fee for, for perpetual access. As long as you're buying a new collection, you don't have any further charges. If you ever get to the point where, as an institution, you only have backlist titles, there is a small kind of maintenance fee to keep the account active and to manage the, the hosting costs and so on. We built it as a sort of two-story extension onto the journals platform that was built by our sister publishing company, Nature Publishing Group. So Palgrave journals have always been on that platform. And we are very aware that those traditional distinctions between journals and monograph content when you start abstracting the, the, um, the real content of the books, sort of evaporates. People don't really care if it's a journal article or a chapter of a monograph. If it's got the content that they're after at that scholarly level, then they want to access it. So we're very much looking to sort of break down those, which is why we kept it on the same platform rather than building an ebook-specific platform. Started off with around 4,500 titles. We've, we passed 7,000 last month. We're well over that now, actually. And we're uh, digitising backlist, clearing rights retrospectively and so on to really kind of build um, critical mass there. And it's been very well received, which is nice. So we've had, uh, as well as commercial success, we've had a lot of critical acclaim as well. So it works on all levels. That's what it looks like. Actually, that's what it looked like. It was, um, it went, I had a, an upgrade two days ago, so even this is out of date now, but it's palgraveconnect.com if you want to have a look at it. Uh, you can see there there's the subject collections, basically focusing on our uh, core strengths and um, most accessed and all, all the sort of normal stuff that you'd expect on there. Go and have a play with it. Everything is freely available except the book content itself if you don't subscribe. So you can have a look at the metadata and do searches and so on. Now traditionally, that's how we published. We had authors liaising closely with editorial rights. We had editorial passing a manuscript onto production with a handover note, production working with external suppliers to actually do the typesetting and printing and so on. The book was then published, went to sales and marketing to promote and out into the big wide world through the supply chain to the customer. Really simple, beautiful linear model. This is what it looks like now. We've got the project team that I was talking about in the middle, this sort of uh, multidisciplinary, multifunctional team. Basically, everybody bringing the expertise in their different areas to focus on one project for a period of time. Um, digital development is my bit, that's new. And we liaise closely with the developers. In the case of Palgrave Connect, it was uh, the MPG developers. Uh, the rights team are vital in this, really important, because there's no, you can have the best content in the world with cracking metadata, but if you haven't actually got the right to sell it, you're going nowhere. So rights is ridiculously important, and a lot of publishers are now finding that they haven't put enough into that in the past and having a very expensive time clearing the rights retrospectively. Editorial remains absolutely core because what we're doing is supporting the content and um, we're pleasing our authors because we don't please our authors, we haven't got a business. Um, production are the ones who liaise with the suppliers to produce the digital content as, as well as the, uh, the print stuff. Sales and marketing, again, massively important. We have a direct sales team, so that extends their role, so it encompasses the whole of the supply chain, if you like, and the digital marketing, the email shots, the social media, all massively important on there. The platform itself, of course, becomes a marketing platform if we use it right. Um, and senior management. Anybody like to take a guess on why senior management are now involved? That would be the level of spend. <laughs> so, <laughs> the sort of investment that you have to make in a project like this is massively visible at the most senior levels in the company. Because if it goes wrong, it's going to break you. So we, um, that, I'm very careful what I say here. <laughs> uh, it, it, it means that you can't move necessarily always as quickly as you'd like, but you have to have a very, very clear sense of the return on your investment, the strategic rationale for everything, and that's a very good discipline. 
but it does, yes, it gives you, it focuses the mind wonderfully when you have to report it that, that, to that senior level. Um, and then obviously we're going out to our customers, we're involving our suppliers in the usual way. So you can see it's a much more complex picture. I have to say, personally, I find it a much, much more stimulating and enjoyable way to work. It's great because you're pulling in all these different people and you're focusing all these, um, this brain power on a single problem. I find it um, much more interesting than a traditional editorial role myself. Uh, and that's it, really. Um, we're creating our processes as we go. We're making this up. There are no rules. And it's very exciting. It's very turbulent. Um, and it's very satisfying. And at the moment, it's working. So we want to do more of it. Um, if you've got any particular things you'd like to pick up from the talk, I'm very happy to do that. Or if you want to ask me any questions, then please do. Um, for business models, do you find that you Absolutely, yeah, and they're not exclusive either. You don't decide on one model and stick with it to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. What you tend to do is layer and schedule. So we started off with a quite a simple model, which is the most um, most cost-effective for purchasers, but also the most revenue-generating for us, if you like, of the, the big collections. Where a, if you're having a rep mediate a sale, it has to be of a certain value to make it worthwhile. Clearly, you know, you're not going to get a rep on the call for one book. So selling a collection means that you're selling bulk. And at that period when we launched, libraries wanted bulk. They wanted to scale up their ebook collections, so that was really, really suitable. We're now looking at more flexible models um, and trying to get the pricing right for a kind of a la carte type system against those um, predefined collections. And then in future, we'll be looking towards more and more granularity, towards chapters and so on, and towards um, perhaps rental models or individual purchase off the site. At the moment, it's just for institutions layering e-commerce on there. So trying to, and we won't, none of them will go away, we'll just be laying on more and more options. And different markets, particularly globally, are at different places in their digital um, acquisitions policy, if you like. So all of those will still remain viable. And one example actually is Diction of Economics, which we've published, oh gosh, 2008 it launched, beginning of 2008, as an annual subscription product. And we add around 40 articles a year. It's got quite a lot of static content, up, um, static pages which get frequently updated. When I say static pages, I mean HTML pages that aren't part of the content of the dictionary. So there's an awful lot of work goes on to, into it, um, updates every year, as I say. But the main body of the text actually doesn't change. And so there was some resistance after a couple of years from librarians saying, why am I paying for this every year? Because actually, that content, you've changed a little bit, but I'm paying the same amount every year. So we now have a hybrid model whereby at the point where you want to stop buying the subscription, the annual subscription, you can simply uh, cancel it and you will revert to access on Connect for all the content that you've paid for. So it's sort of like a journals model where you, when you stop, you, you get the content on, on the um, archive platform. So we've got sort of solutions that we can mix and match for people. So we've still got a lot of people who want the subscription because they want the annual new content. We've got others who say, actually, do you know what? My serials budget is just too stretched now and I'm going to drop it and just have archive access to what I've already paid for. Um, you said um, you want that people know how to use uh, social media, so uh, I'd be really glad if you tell us a bit about how you do use social media. I'd also have to add a question on one, one particular thing, because I've probably only just come up top and just looked at a library thing, which I've mm. been aware of for a while and never actually got around to look. I noticed that that um, one can import uh, one's library, mm. more or less, uh, into it. But, but, but 
this email to people to see like, who are the, which other people have got that particular book, or maybe yeah, absolutely. And there's horizontal trust networks. Yeah, yeah. We one of the things we did on Connect was implement Conatia. I don't know if you heard of Conatia. It was um, uh, an innovation from Nature Publishing Group originally, uh, and it's do you know Delicious? Yeah. Yeah, sort of social bookmarking basically. But obviously, Delicious is a sort of mass market product, if you like. Conatia was originally intended for scientists, so it's very much about um, people who were going to be interested in a particular area. But it's just so useful that it's spread into social science as well, and it's um, it's quite a an established but folksonomic type um, social net social networking tool that you can use in academia alongside formal citation systems and so on. So um, we've got Mark this book in Connotia, for example. Connotia, C O W N O T E A, Connotia. And um, if you have a Connotia account, you can look at other people with accounts obviously uh, that you um, are interested in and for example if you have bookmarked uh, a page you can see who else has bookmarked the page and then go on to explore what else they've bookmarked because chances are you might like those and that's really that kind of network effect is so positive and so powerful because if we have a trusted peer group and we can have one of them endorse independently one of our titles that kind of marketing is worth thousands to us it's the sort of thing that you can you can't buy you know if somebody um, is in a, is a sort of node of trust within that community, and they are retweeting it or flagging it on Connoteer or Delicious or however, however they're liking it on Facebook or whatever, then um, there's a real sense of integrity and trust about that, and that their peers, who of course are the people that we want to reach, will respond much more favourably to that than they would respond to say an email from us. So we do all the traditional marketing stuff like you know, the flyers, the email campaigns, the sort of conference stands, do a lot of conferences and talking people through products and actually sort of showing them because it's quite hard to just get headspace and get attention. Conferences are a good place to do that. But alongside that we try and implement those sorts of um, social media tools. So that's something that's specifically on Connect. And we've also got um, Twitter accounts for key areas, for example, which we, again, we use quite a lot of conferences because the hashtag will attract people who are at the conference and lots of real-time events <coughs> at conferences and so on. But yeah, we, I don't think we use Facebook, for example, as effectively as we can. We've got Facebook groups, and particularly for our social work um, stuff, uh, social work, um, study skills stuff, which is what the Skills Study Campus product is based on. We've got a really effective um, Facebook group there. There apparently is a Facebook group, group for one of our kind of cult books, Stroud Mathematical Engineering, and it's sort of a Stroud Saved My Life Facebook group. <laughs> which again, that's the kind of marketing you can't buy, is it? <laughs> So yes, I'd say we've got um, examples of where it works really, really well, and we've got more work to do on really getting the kind of toolkit of stuff that we can confidently pull together and assemble for any one campaign, and that's sort of what we're working on now. Alison